Chapter 10 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 10 Mitchell is Investigated. Cordelia rode back to Rolling Meadows in soaring spirits after her gratifying day in town. Her thoughts were inclined to play about Jerry Plimpton and that brilliant future whose brilliance was to be jointly hers and Jerry's. But the practical aspects of her situation intruded upon these pleasant prospects, and regretfully she let practicality force fancy into subsidence. Before she could try to turn these dreams, which included Jerry, into a permanent reality, she had to clear up this situation at Rolling Meadows, and as her roadster sped on, she considered what should be her next steps in trying to discover the fundamental facts of the mystery. Again, she wished she might go straight to Esther or Gladys and ask for be given their confidence. That would be so much the finer and simpler way. But she realized that this direct approach was close to her. They would make denial or refuse to talk and with them thus put upon their guard, she would be able to learn nothing from observing them. There was no other course but for her to continue to be a spy. She hated being a spy, even a spy in a good cause. But espionage seemed the only hope for finding a remedy for, and bringing relief to, this situation. She felt no such compunctions over spying upon Mitchell. Mitchell, that semi-scoundrel or great villain, who held Gladys and Esther in his soft and supple but relentless hands. Mitchell, as she and Mr. Franklin had agreed, was the one above all others to be watched and studied. It occurred to Cordelia that even an investigation of Mitchell's room might reveal some enlightening facts concerning this pseudo and real butler. With Mitchell now in the city, this afternoon might afford her the ideal opportunity for an investigation of Mitchell's effects. But when, towards six, Cordelia hurried up the terrace at Rolling Meadows. There was Mitchell, again in his formal black coat, starting into the doorway with a tea tray. He saw her, and waited with that impersonal formality of his until she was upon the porch. "'Shall I serve you tea, Miss Marlowe?' "'If you please, Mitchell. Have Miss Norwich and Miss Stevens had theirs?' Uh, "'They finished just a few minutes ago. Uh, they are now playing with Master Francois.' She thought rapidly. If I am to have tea alone, then bring it to my sitting room. Yes, Miss Marlowe. I'll have fresh tea up there for you within five minutes. She hastened to her suite. This might be her chance, through adroit questioning, to learn something about Mitchell. But her questions had to be indeed adroit, seemingly without purpose beyond mere personal curiosity. Otherwise, the man might take alarm and his alarm might be the end of all her plans here. She knew Mitchell had it in his power to secure the swift termination of her visit. "'I saw you in the city today, Mitchell,' she began as he set down the tray before her. "'Yes, Miss Marlowe. I had a few hours off, and I went in to attend to a little business.' "'I thought you saw me.' "'Yes, Miss Marlowe.' "'But you refused to meet my eye, to speak to me.' A butler who knows his place, Miss Marlowe, does not expect to be recognized in public by the guests of his employer. 
he stood respectfully before her, with the air of being entirely at her command. Never before had he seemed more the perfect butler, never more bounded by the rigid conventions of his position. But you do not seem like the average butler, Mitchell. You seem to be, well, something very different. I once hoped and intended to be something different. Then how did it happen that you became a butler? It started in college when I... Then you're a college man? Yes, Miss Marlowe. What college? If you will permit me, I would rather not say. My parents also expected me to be something different. I would not want their pride to be hurt by finding out what I am now doing. I see. You're trying to hide your identity? Yes, Miss Marlowe. So long as I remain a butler. Telling you my college might somehow betray my identity. Yes, I see. Then I suppose Mitchell is not your real name. No, Miss Marlowe. I understand. You started to tell me how you became a butler. Won't you please go on? It's really a very commonplace experience, Miss Marlowe. My people were poor, and I had to work my way through college. For four years I worked in, then managed, a college eating club. My first two summers I was a waiter in a big resort hotel. That was the best paying work I could get during summers. Then one summer I was chief steward on board a private yacht. The owner liked me, seemed to have confidence in me, and the next summer he put me in charge of his country house as butler. My parents needed financial help just then. I could earn more, at least could save more, as a butler than by doing anything else. So I remained with this gentleman as butler for over a year. I had managed to save more than my parents needed, so I started to take a special course in electrical engineering. But before I had finished my course, my money gave out, and I started to work for a firm of engineers. But when the war was over and I was demobilized, then you were in service? Yes, Miss Marlowe. Under the name of Mitchell or your own? Under neither, Miss Marlowe. I joined in with the Canadians at the beginning of the war. I was afraid my enlisting might cause complications with my own country, so I took another name, just as many other Americans did. Go on, please. I was among the last to be demobilized. You will recall what a hard time the soldiers, particularly those who were last discharged, had in getting their old jobs back. I could not get mine, nor any other like it. No one seemed to want an ex-soldier, especially a sickly one, or I still felt the effects of being gassed. But there were plenty of chances in household service, so I decided to turn again to that. I learned that Miss Norwich needed a butler, and she gave me my present place. It's light work here, and I'm keeping the place until I get my strength back. Miss Norworth and Miss Stevens were in France during the war. Perhaps you met them in Paris? No, Miss Marlowe. Of course, Mitchell, you do not intend to remain a butler? I like it here. They are good to me, and a butler could have no better place. But, of course, I have other ambitions. With the experience I have had in managing household affairs, I have thought I might do better to drop the idea of being an engineer and start a restaurant in New York. That is, if I can find a partner with capital. 
a small restaurant, but with an appeal to a discriminating clientele. You should make a success of it. I'm sure everyone will wish the very best for you. Thank you, Miss Marlowe. Pardon me for having talked so much about myself. I'm sure your tea must have become quite cold. Shall I get you some hot tea and toast? What you have told me has been most interesting. Don't worry about fresh tea, for I'm quite through. You may take the tray. He had picked up the tray and was starting from the room when she thought of something else. By the way, Mitchell, last night you began to tell me something, or ask me something. I suppose it was something important? Yes, Miss Marlowe. Important to you? Yes, Miss Marlowe. And perhaps important to other persons? she suggested. Well, yes, Miss Marlowe. Perhaps you have changed your mind, and would like to tell me as you first intended. That impulse of last night was wrong, Miss Marlowe. I think I should not tell you. He waited for a moment. Is there anything else you wish, Miss Marlowe? That is all, Mitchell. After he had gone, Cordelia sat considering the things he had told her. She had trapped him in two lies. He had said that he had not met Gladys and Esther in Paris. She happened to know that he had known them in Paris very well indeed. He had spoken about still being weak from having been gassed. She recalled the ease with which he had lifted her from the floor the previous night, recalled the steely strength of the hands that had supported her up the stairway. What a liar the man was! And that rigmarole explaining how he had become a butler, paying his way through college by working in an eating club and in summer working in hotels and private families. All that long tale was just pure invention. Examining the details of the interview one by one, she could not find a single item which she felt she could safely regard as a fact. As an investigation, the interview had been a failure. As she sat thinking, a disquieting doubt filtered into her consciousness. After all, had she really been the person who had directed that interview? Mitchell's story, such as it was, had come out with surprising ease, requiring no urging at all from her. Instead of her having adroitly drawn his story from him, might the fact not be that he had been adroitly thrusting that story upon her? And if so, what was his purpose? And again she wondered what was that thing which he had been upon the point of telling or asking her. He piqued her curiosity more than ever. More than ever did she feel that the matter of first importance in her business was to get at the truth behind this man. The opportunity to go through his effects came after breakfast the following morning. Cordelia was in Esther's sitting-room, and she and Esther and Gladys were playing with Francois, as was the custom while his governess had her breakfast. There was a knock, and Mitchell stepped in. "'Excuse me,' he said. "'I have come for Master Francois.' Esther looked up from the paper elephant she was cutting out and regarded him coldly. "'You need not bother. Jean will be here in a few minutes.' "'Jean wanted to look after Master Francois's laundry.' and I promised her I would take him out for his walk. He turned to the boy. Would Master Francois like to come with Mitchell? Yes, Mitchell, the boy cried, jumping and running across the room, his paper menagerie fluttering to the floor. You'll tell me a story? After I've taken you for a walk and shown you the bunny I bought you in town yesterday. It came this morning. A bunny? A bunny? Oh, Mitchell! A real-life bunny that can really eat? 
It can really eat, Master Francois. Come on, Mitchell, let's run. Master Francois must first say goodbye. Goodbye, Mother Esther. Goodbye, Mother Gladys. Goodbye, Mother Cordelia. Now come on, Mitchell. Francois seized the man's hand and excitedly led Mitchell from the room. Cordelia caught a quick flush in Esther's cheek and a swift angry flash in Gladys's eye, and she wondered again what was Mitchell's real purpose in courting the boy's liking. To show his velvet power? To taunt and tease them? Or might his impulse be a real affection for Francois? A father's affection? But this was no time to follow up these conjectures. Here was her chance. Mitchell out on the grounds, the other servants at breakfast. Cordelia excused herself, and, once out of the room, she hurried for the wing containing the servants' quarters. Mitchell's room adjoined the trunk room. If seen in this part of the house, her explanation would be that she had come for some article she had left in a trunk. Of course, his room was probably locked. Cautiously, she tried the door. It was not locked, and breathlessly she slipped in. Her quick glance showed her a room whose formal orderliness matched Mitchell's butler personality. She did not expect to find a great deal here. Mitchell was too shrewd a person to be likely to leave anything of real importance about. The most she hoped for was a bare clue either to his identity or to his power over the household. There were a number of books, not many. To her, on her present business, they were vaguely suggestive, rather than definitely informative. There were a number of volumes dealing with problems of electrical engineering, and a few novels, Tom Jones, Vanity Fair, Gil Blas, Don Quixote, Meredith's The Egoist. Rapid as was her survey, she retained a dim impression that the man's fictional preference was towards comedy and satire. She turned to his drawers and went swiftly through them, then through his closet, scrutinizing each garment and then replacing each article exactly as she found it. His clothes were all the best, even of the quality a Jerry Plimpton might have worn. But aside from the maker's names, they were unmarked or bore the admittedly assumed name of Mitchell. Only two articles of any possible significance did she come upon. One was a bank book in Mitchell's name, showing a credit of a trifle over three hundred dollars, the plausible savings of a servant. It made her think of a safe deposit box, where his real savings, the tribute he had collected here, and his important documents were doubtless hidden away, and it begot in her a desire some day to learn the secrets of that box. The second article was a letter which he found in the coat Mitchell had worn the day before in town. It was addressed, Care General Delivery, New York City, was stamped as received on the previous day, and was upon the stationery of a Cleveland hotel, and address, contents, and signature were all typewritten, with many clumsy, amateurish erasures and corrections in the body of the letter. The letter read, Dear Buddy, That last two thousand you sent was a lifesaver, a million thanks. Perhaps I have been trying to expand the business a little too rapidly, but the profits will prove this has been the right course. Of course, I could have done nothing without the help of your money, and you are going to have half the profits even if you don't take a partnership in the business. I'm still keeping my name out of the firm, still sticking to Excelsior, so that we can use your name if you change your mind and decide to come in. Of course, I don't blame you for not wanting to come out here and buckle down to this routine drudgery when you are cleaning up so much coin in New York. I wish you would open up and tell me how you were making all that dough. I don't know that an outsider had a chance against those New York business sharps, not unless a fellow went into the bandit or bootlegging business. 
you are certainly the best and squarest pal a guy ever had. But say, boy, for a clever businessman, you are running a big risk in sending your remittances to me in the form of drafts payable to cash and bearer. Any professional mail looter would give three silent cheers to get his hands on one of those. Better be more careful. I'm beginning to get the hang of this damned vest pocket typewriter you've made me lug around to write my letters to you on. Though I don't yet quite see the idea of your wanting all my letters to you typewritten, and typewritten by my own five-thumbed hands. May the goddess who adorns the dollar continue to regard you as her favorite child. Yours till Gabriel toots for the final demobilization. J. Cordelia returned the letter to the pocket from which she had taken it, and a minute later she was hurrying away in feverish thought. Who was this J? Also she asked herself the two questions which J implied. Why was J required to write in a typewriter? And why was money sent payable to cash or bearer? In a few moments Cordelia had the answers, or at least she thought she had. These were obviously measures to prevent names appearing elsewhere on paper that might later disconcertingly appear as evidence, and to prevent betrayal by an identifiable handwriting. This letter, which had told so little that was definite, had made Mitchell a still more intriguing personality. Evidently, Jay liked him, admired him, trusted him. Mitchell must have a lot of qualities she had not guessed behind that expressionless butler's mask of his. Obeying a subconscious purpose, she had, all the while she had been thinking of this letter, been moving about the grounds in search of Mitchell. And now, in a quiet spot shut off from the side of the house, she glimpsed Mitchell and Francois and the rabbit which could really eat. This was still another Mitchell she now saw. Not he of butler's coat, not he of smart Fifth Avenue garb, nor he of that voice of taunting quality which had come to her in the darkness from the open window. He was seated on the grass, the wrapped Francois on his lap, both watching the really live rabbit nibbling at a lettuce leaf. And Mitchell was talking, and his face had an eager, good-humored smile, almost a boyish smile, which matched that of Francois. And when he laughed, his laugh seemed to have as much the ring of spontaneous, carefree happiness as that of the boy. Mitchell was undoubtedly having a gorgeous time. Cordelia slipped away unnoted. Who? Who? And what was the real Mitchell? End of chapter 10 Recording by Todd